Well, good evening, folks. I'll invite folks to uh, take their seat and we'll get started here. Well, welcome to uh, Bucket Theology Class 3. Bucket Theology Class 3, as you can see, we're going to be dealing with the topic of providence tonight. So th for those of you who don't know me, my name is Pastor Rob Snyder. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Calvary Grace Church. It's a delight to be able to teach some systematic theology to you folks tonight. And it's encouraging to see many people out. So let me pray. I want to begin with prayer, and then we're going to dive in. Let's let's pray. So Heavenly Father, as we approach you uh, through Jesus Christ and his shed blood, and even by the power of the Spirit, Father, we ask that you would grant us uh, minds to uh, think and learn and listen, and even to be receptive and even submissive uh, to your inspired word. Father, even on a hot summer day, as people are, are perhaps feeling tired, we just thank you for a cool basement to be able to uh, consider these things. Just pray that this time could be edifying and encouraging and would bring you honor and praise, and even that we would find joy in your providence overall. So help us now, attend us now, we pray by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I was going to make an announcement, actually, and I should have made this before. The books are in. The books are in, and there's books up front here with green name tags for folks who ordered one. Um, so maybe let's just, whoever ordered one, come on up and grab it. I'll just give you a minute or two. And then we can get going. Um, and, and then you'll be able to follow along. I think my friend ordered She hasn't been into any of the classes till now. Okay. There be there be should be a green name tag there. Sure. That's great. Yeah. Perfect. I'm pretty sure Joey's not going to be coming. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Well, for those of you who are too timid to come up and grab your book, that's fine. Um, you've got a, a fairly extensive handout in front of you tonight. If you follow along in that, it's going to all make sense, and you can come up and grab your book after. There are other books in this box here that are for sale as well. If you're interested in, in that book, it is $15. Okay. So without the way then. So like I said, I, I get, I sort of feel spoiled because so far, Pastor Clint, he has had the challenging task of covering three or four different topics in each class so far. Now I feel spoiled because I get to cover one topic. And that's the doctrine of providence. So what that's going to allow us to do then is to dive maybe a little bit deeper into the one topic tonight. Um, 
So, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of basing this talk off of the PDF of Louis Burkhoff because we didn't have these books yet. So that the, uh, the footnotes in your handout are based on the PDF book. So those page numbers aren't going to match your book now, but that's fine. So just by way of review, last class, Pastor Clint covered in chapter eight, the divine decrees, and in chapter nine, creation. Now tonight, like I said, we're going to be looking at chapter 10 in the PDF book, Providence. I think I, I listened to Pastor Clint's message or, or lecture this past week. I wasn't able to make it. And I think he touched on Providence for about three or four minutes. Uh, it was near the end of class. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper here. So notice the definition then from Burkhoff in your outline there. So Burkhoff says, the definition of providence, this may be defined as that work of God in which he preserves all his creatures, is active in all that happens in the world, and directs all things to their appointed ends. It includes three elements, of which the first pertains primarily to the being, the second to the activity, and the third to the purpose of all things. Now, right underneath that, you can see I've copy-pasted uh, 3.1 and 3.2 from the elders' teaching statement at Calvary Grace Church. So if you go on our website, you can see the footnote there. This is from the elders' teaching statement. In other words, all of the elders of Calvary Grace subscribe to these truths. You can see how it goes a little bit deeper into God's providence. Look at 3.1. We believe that God, from all eternity... In order to display the full extent of his glory for the eternal and ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love him, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. 3.2, we believe that God upholds and governs all things from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image." Now, the suggestion I'm going to make then as I go through this lesson, because I know that there's going to be um, there's topics that we're going to cover tonight that rub against the, our fleshly impulses, if I could put it that way, even rub rub against they, they rub the wrong way against human rationalism, human reasoning. So what I'm going to suggest right off the start is based on this, this statement from the elders teaching statement, which very much aligns with Burkhoff's definition of providence. What I'm gonna suggest is if you, if, you, if you have issues and other questions that I'm not able to address tonight, go to the website. You can see the numbers in the elders teaching statement with links to the Bible verses and go explore that for yourself uh, and consider those biblical truths prayerfully. Okay, so that's point one. We're gonna we're gonna jump into point two now. And I 
I, I left the Latin there without the explanation for a reason. Opera day ad extra. Opera day ad extra. I want to see if folks can figure that out. Maybe there are some folks here studying Latin. I'm not sure. What do you guys think opera day ad extra means? Does anyone know what day means or dei? God. Okay, so we got God. What is opera? <laughs> not, not the singing. It has to do with operations or workings. And then add extra is external. Add intra is internal. So opera day add extra then. I'm gonna we're gonna refer to this. Opera day add extra goes here. So God's creation and his providence are his external works, his external works. You guys covered God's eternal decree or decrees last time. This is God's internal works or opera day ad intra. All right. So this is going to be key as we go through this. This sort of gives you so, I mean, obviously, God is not bound by time. He created time. But what this, this is sort of a flow chart. God's eternal decree, opera day ad intra, internal workings of God, flows into his creation. And his providence then is downstream of his creation. So there's a logical order here for our created finite minds. Now, again, it's important to remember, God is not bound by time. Right. But this is sort of the way it plays out for us in our experience. So history starts here. Right. History starts here at the point of God's creation. OK. Now, just a few points, and this is so this is one of the things that systematic theology does. It sort of slices and dices. It slices and dices into nuanced points. But the thing that nuance gives us is it actually gives us clarity, right? I like to explain nuance as rather than the old school sort of super pixelated picture that you get on an old uh, 80s video game, right? Nuance is like the video games that they have nowadays in high definition. That's what nuance actually does, properly speaking. It, it adds um, color and clarity. So I'm, I'm just going to write three things down here. Under opera day ad intra. We've got foreknowledge. Purpose or plan. Uh, nope, I've already confused that. Purpose, purpose or proposed end.
and plan. Okay. So within the operations, opera de ad intra, the internal workings of God. If we're going to slice and dice a little bit, we've got God's foreknowledge, God's purpose or proposed end, and then his plan. This is all taking place in the divine council of the triune God, as it were, before he created. Now, under the opera de ad extra, uh, I'm, I'm going to hold off on that for a sec, actually. We're going to get there. So just to explain this then a little bit. Before God ever created the heavens and the earth, he had a foreknowledge. So think about God's omniscience. God's all-knowing. He had a foreknowledge of all that would surely come to pass according to a purposeful end, which he and the divine counsel, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned would take place. Okay. Then within the opera day ad extra, or the external works of God, we see the execution of the opera day ad intra, or the internal works of God. Like I said before, this is where history starts. This is where we get our doctrine of creation and providence. Okay. So now, these are the three points of the opera day ad extra. And this is really the, the three elements based on Burkhoff's book that we're going to go over. So we've got preservation. Concurrence. And governments. All making sense so far? We're sort of starting to slice and dice. Preservation, concurrence, and government. So those are the three main points we're going to cover tonight. There's going to be a couple extra at the end. But this is, again, based off Burkhoff's work. So the first point then. God's divine preservation. You can see there on, their, on your handout, you got a, uh, a definition. This is Burkhoff. He says, quote, this is that continuous work of God by which he upholds all things. While the world has a distinct existence and is not part of God, so remember the creator-creature distinction, it nevertheless has the ground of its continued existence in God and not in itself. It endures through a continued exercise of divine power by which all things are maintained in being and action. And again, if you're taking notes, there should actually be a handout on your table that has that definition. All right, explanation. So one of the key things, and I'm going to explain this by pointing out the ditches, as it were. One of the key things to recognize about the doctrine of providence is there's two ditches that uh, the doctrine of divine preservation is uh, sort of finding the, the proper biblical middle ground. What are those two ditches? Well, the one is deism, and the other one is pantheism. Deism and pantheism. So I think you, this is in your handout. This is from Robert Lethem. 
Deism teaches that God created, quote, the world to operate under its own imminent laws without his ongoing involvement. So you've probably heard the illustration before that the God of the deists is the watchmaker God, right? He's the God who created the watch with all its in intricacy and parts and everything else, but he just sort of wound it up and let it go now, right? God is not really involved in any meaningful way in his creation any longer. That's the God of the deists. Now it's important to recognize this 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 became popular in the in the 17th and 18th centuries during the time the time of the Enlightenment. What was happening during the time of the Enlightenment? Anyone want to throw throw anything out there? How how would you how would you sort of describe what was happening during the time of the Enlightenment? I see you're you're thinking, Rini. Inventions, philosophies. Inventions, philosophies. That's true. Now there is also a great um th th there was there was a great weight placed on human rationalism and reason that's sort of one of the defining features of the enlightenment and deism was a result of that say it again descartes yes i think therefore i am yes exactly he was an enlightenment philosopher descartes all right Sorry. I cannot recall off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The opposite end of the spectrum is pantheism. Now, if you were here about a month ago for my sermon on Psalm 96, I dealt with this word. So pantheism, pan in Greek means all, theos means God. So what the pantheist believes is that all is God or all is divine. In other words, there is no creator-creature distinction because there is no creator. Therefore, there is no creation. Everything just sort of is. Everything exists, and it is all divine. So according to the pantheist, then, again, there is no creation. You can't really use that term. So in opposition to both these errors, then, we have a creator God who preserves his creation. He is distinct from it, but he is also intimately involved in it. More than that, he actually continually upholds and sustains it. All right, so so kids here, I'm trying to see, yeah, there's there's children here, just trying to get your attention. Just think about this for a sec in regarding God's preservation. The reason that your hearts are beating right now is because of God's divine preservation. The, region, the reason that your lungs are breathing right now, the reason that the sun is shining right now, the reason that the world is spinning right now is because of God's divine preservation. He upholds and sustains and preserves his creation. All right, point three, the Noahic covenant. This is, again, something that I touched on a little bit in my Psalm 96 sermon recently. So in the Noahic Covenant, God promises to preserve his creation, fallen though it is. And his purposes in that is because the Messiah, the offspring of Eve and Abraham's offspring, still needs to come, right? So that's part of the reason why God has promised to preserve his creation, even to the end, fallen though it is. 
So God in the Noahic covenant, that, that is the covenant with Noah, he promised that he would not destroy the world again with a worldwide flood. So contrary to the belief of some folks then, human beings are not a parasite on this planet that are going to bring an apocalyptic end to this planet unless we buy into the Green New Deal. That's the way it's framed or whatever it's called. I don't know if they're using that term anymore. It seems to change every few days. God has promised in the Noahic Covenant that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the Noahic Covenant is key then. It's a, it's a key component of the doctrine of divine preservation. Let's look at some scripture here. Again, you can see um, the Noahic Covenant. You want to read more about that. Genesis 8, 20 to 9, 17. Look at the verse from Nehemiah 9, 6. I think that one's on your handout. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the he heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Now, Paul, Acts 17, in the Areopagus, dealing with pagan philosophers, he said in Acts 17, 24, 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And a little bit later on, if you're familiar with that chapter in Acts 17, Quoting their own poets, he says, in him, that is in God, we live and move and have our being. All right, we got Colossians 1, and I'm going to read 15 to 17. I think you have verse 17 on your handout. Just listen to this. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the second person, the Trinity, he is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And notice verse 17, and he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. The reason why this pulpit right here is being sustained, even though it's a dead piece of wood, is because the second person of the Trinity, as we speak, is upholding it. He's sustaining it by the word of his power. You can see this again, or I think I just quoted Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, again, speaking of Christ, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All right, so one of the things I want to point out about this section, divine preservation, before we move on to concurrence, is notice the present tense verbs in those verses. So you preserve, present tense. You give, in him we live, right? Not in him we lived. In him we live. In him all things hold together. Not he used to hold everything together, but now something else is, right? Present tense verbs. In him all things hold together. 
And then Hebrews 1, 3, he upholds, he upholds, not he upheld, not he will up, uphold, right? Present tense. All right. Um, I'm going to give maybe just a little moment for questions. Are there any questions at this point? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Are sovereignty and providence synonymous? I would say the slight nuance of providence as to com as compared to sovereignty is the doctrine of providence really focuses on God's work in his creation. Whereas his sovereignty, his sovereignty would even have to do with his eternal decree, right? So, so providence really has to do with the playing out of what God has, has preordained, right? And his governance of that, his sustaining of it, and so on. Does that make sense? Aiden? So preservation sort of implies like a, say this, almost like a deterioration in the sense that he, he needs to be continually involved with his creation. Is that a product of the fall or was it that way from the beginning? So is divine preservation a product of the fall or was it like that from the beginning? It was like that from the beginning. Though preservation, I would suggest, looks differently after the fall, uh, perhaps. But like, so put it this way, in the new heavens and the new earth, God will still be preserving that new creation. Or, or that, I mean, we could say that remodeled or that renovated creation, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on because we need to keep trucking here. There's lots of uh, stuff to cover. There's going to be other times for questions. All right, so we're going to jump uh, in now with both feet into likely what's going to be uh, the most controversial topic. So we're going to spend the most time on it because there's lots to chew through here. And that is the doctrine of divine concurrence. Divine concurrence. Why is this controversial? Well, just listen up and you will very quickly find out why. You can see Burkhoff's definition. This may be defined as that work of God by which he cooperates with all his creatures and causes them to act precisely as they do. It implies that there, that there are real secondary causes in the world such as the powers of nature and the will of man, and asserts that these do not work independently of God. God works in every act of his creatures, not only in their good, but also in their evil acts. He stimulates them to action, accompanies their action at every moment, and makes this action effective. However, we should never think of God and man as equal causes. The former is the primary, and the latter only a secondary cause. Neither should we conceive of them as each doing a part of the work like a team of horses. The same deed is in its entirety both a deed of God and a deed of man. Moreover, we should guard against the idea that this cooperation makes God responsible for man's sinful decisions. Okay. Explanation. I'm going to explain this doctrine again by pointing out some errors. It's often helpful to just point out errors and then we're gonna bring it up with the Bible after that. So explanation. As we saw, deism and pantheism are errors often uh, in regards to God's divine preservation. Although as a side note, uh, pantheism and deism are ditches to fall into. 
just in, in the doctrine of providence in general. You can see here, we're going to deal with three errors. There's other ones, but these are three main ones, which are still uh, alive and well, I would say, in modern evangelicalism in our day. These are errors uh, in reference to the doctrine of concurrence. First one, Arminianism. Arminianism. So the founder, Jacobus Arminius, 1560 to 1609, a Dutch theologian who inverted the order of God's eternal decree. How do you do that? It sounds confusing. Well, let me explain. He inverted the order of God's eternal decree specifically with regards to soteriology. What is that? Who knows what soteriology means? Salvation. Doctrine of salvation. Soterion means savior. Logos is word. So it's, 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 it's the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology. So Arminius, Arminius believed that God decrees to save all who repent, believe, and persevere. In other words, election is conditional on man's response. Election is conditional on man's response. So essentially, Arminius is saying that God actually didn't choose anyone. He didn't choose to save anyone. Rather, he looked down the corridors of time, as it were, and foresaw who would choose him. And then he elects that individual. That's essentially what Arminius taught. So what this means then is God's saving grace is universal, not particular. God's grace can be resisted and falling away from grace is a possibility. So what that means then is within the Arminiast um, system of thought, there is no assurance of salvation. There is no assurance of salvation. Since you are the ultimate cause of your salvation, it's ultimately on you to make sure you continue to believe. That's Arminianism. Open theism. Again, second error. This is a belief system that claims that there is no guarantee, this is quoting Robert Lethem, systematic theologian, as to how events will work out. Not even God knows this. So the future is open, as it were. That's where you get the word open and open theism. Again, theism having to do with God, theology of God. So what this means then is God's acting in history is largely reactionary, is largely reactionary. He doesn't know what people are going to do until they've done it. And then he acts or responds to their initiative. So the way I like to describe open theism then is it's essentially as if God, the, the creator God has created a Frankenstein. He's created a Frankenstein who has gotten out of his control. <laughs> My wife's shaking her head because... <laughs> Frankenstein was the doctor, but he created a monster, which was a Frankenstein, just like you have a Rembrandt, right? What's that? I'm getting picked on by my wife here. It was a product of the Dr. Frankenstein. Okay, but you see the point. It's this monster who is outside of the control of the creator. So what is the creator trying to do now? He's desperately trying to fix the problem that he's created. 
And of course, there's no guarantees that he's going to do it, right? You can hope that he's going to figure it out, right? But you can only hope. There's no guarantees. There's no guarantees. Um, author Richard Rice, in his 1980 book, The Openness of God, The Relationship of Divine Foreknowledge and Human Free Will, he was one of the first ad advocates in, in the modern day. I think he may have been the, the one who coined the term, open theism. Another advocate of this position would be Greg Boyd. Um, a very helpful response to open theism would be the book by John Frame called No Other Gods. You want to chase that down more? Book by John Frame, very good systematic theologian called No Other God. He takes the open theist to task. Now, it's interesting to know, I just want to point this out. Long before the term open theism was coined, the Socinians of the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, Socinians, I'm pretty sure Pastor Clint is going to deal with them at some point when you're dealing with, when he's going to be teaching on a doctrine of Christology, because the Socinians denied the deity of Christ, among other things. They also sounded very much like open theists. Listen to uh, systematic theologian Herman Bavink's summary of some of their beliefs. So Bavink says, quote, according to the open theist, by nature, the human will is so free that God cannot beforehand calculate what a person will do in a given case. Only when a decision has been made, does God adapt to his own act, does he adapt his own action to it? Free causes accordingly function in complete independence alongside and outside of God. So said the Socinians of the 16th and 17th century. So you can see then that heresy really just gets recycled. And again, the Socinians were very much within that enlightenment age. All right, that's open theism. Last error, Molinism. Molinism. Now, if your head wasn't spinning yet, it, it is sure to be spinning after we look at Molinism. This belief system is named after the 16th century Roman Catholic Jesuit priest and theologian Louis de Molina. So he was Spanish. One of the key emphases in this system of thought is the concept of middle knowledge. Middle knowledge. So particularly what is understood to be God's middle knowledge of counterfactuals. Now, please bear with me. What this essentially means is that God, because he's omniscient, that is all-knowing, he knows what his free creatures would choose in any given hypothetical circumstance. So let me illustrate. And I realize that I actually, the wording of this illustration is a little bit wrong. So we could put it this way. If it is a nice summer evening, Fred will, that word there should be will rather than would, because we're dealing with hypotheticals. If it is a nice summer evening, Fred would choose to go for a bike ride rather than going to bucket theology. Let me say it again. If it is a nice summer evening, Fred would choose to go for a bike ride rather than going to bucket theology. So the counterfactuals then are the hypothetical possibilities which a person uh, could be confronted with 
And God's middle knowledge is a knowledge of how that person would respond if put in that situation. So in terms of salvation, then God being omniscient, using his middle knowledge of all possible counterfactuals has created the best possible world of all possible worlds in which the most possible pe people will freely choose him. That makes sense. It takes a while to sort of get your mind around this one. So God is essentially, he's figured out all the possible worlds that he could have possibly created. And he's been able to sort of foresee, based on the different circumstances of different possible worlds, how the maximum amount of people that would, choose, that would freely choose him. And then God has chosen to create that best of all possible worlds. That's Molinism. Now, what's the sacred cow? I'm calling it a sacred cow because it is. In all of these systems of thought, I've already given the answer there. But what is it? It's autonomous human free will. That's the sacred cow in all three of these errors. Or you could call it even libertarian free will. That is, that is without any government, with, without any um, restriction. So in all three systems of thought, God is constrained and limited in what he is able to accomplish because of human free will. Yep. Sacred cow. I mean... Um, Sort of like the cow that the northern, the, the cows of the northern kingdom of Israel built, right? It's it's a false uh, sort of protected thing that a person shares. It's sort of like an like an idol almost. Um, and it yeah, it, it it really is autonomous human free will. Really is a sacred cow, and I would say it's it's this type of thinking. Um, I mean, the Bible deals with with uh, human objections the God's sovereignty and salvation, but certainly from the enlightenment on uh, autonomous human free will has been a sacred cow in, in much philosophical thinking. So what I'm suggesting then here is that all three of these isms, so Arminianism, open theism, Molinism are the result of a philosophical commitment that is foreign to the Holy scriptures. There's a philosophical commitment at play that is foreign to the Holy Scriptures from which these belief systems are derived. And again, that commitment is autonomous free will. Now, question at this point, you, some of you guys are already asking, I know, what about Calvinism? What about Calvinism? Calvinism, of course, is just another ism, isn't it? Well, I'm going to suggest that Calvinism, as it's been called, is simply a coherent theological system based upon proper exegesis of the Holy Scriptures as a whole. In other words, it's not, it doesn't have a, a, a philosophical pre-commitment that it's trying to work into the Holy Scriptures. It's a result of exegesis of the Scriptures. So again, the other three isms without fail, make their appeal to the, 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 the Christian scriptures and competing authorities. Calvinism, I, I would suggest, 
is a result of biblical exegesis, understanding the Bible as a whole. So again, these systems of thought really picked up steam in the Enlightenment. I would just say, whether you believe me or not, modern evangelicalism is still very much plagued by these three errors. And what these three errors do, among other things, is they greatly weaken the church. They greatly weaken the church. I think as I carry on in this lesson, you'll see why. Um, I found a statement by systematic theologian Michael Horton, which I thought was quite interesting. I think it's on your handout there. Michael Horton says, quote, many Christians who have difficulty accepting divine sovereignty and salvation nevertheless share the most ardent predestinarian confidence in the ultimate lordship of God over all natural and historical phenomena. I think that's a, that's a key insight into modern evangelicalism in our day. So let's look at scripture now. Let's flip to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Let's see if we find libertarian free will in this passage. Or whose will is highlighted. Ephesians 3, I'm going to read a pretty good section here. Uh, Ephesians 3, sorry, sorry, ch chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. So notice this, this is the Apostle Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of whose will? His will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of what? His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory okay so one of the things i want to point out here then it's some of you guys already know this probably but it, it's it's fairly easy to, to miss notice the trinitarian activity in this passage even in regards to god's eternal decree it's the father who chooses whom he will save right before the foundation of the world verse four so that would be opera day what? Ad intra. The father chooses. The son redeems God's elect in the nitty gritty details of history. 
The second person, the Trinity, takes on flesh to go to a cross. He's crucified in the flesh. So the, so the Father chooses and the Son redeems. So the, that, that's opera day what? Extra. It's in history. The Holy Spirit then, verse 13, applies and seals the believer for the eternal life that the Father has planned and that the Son has accomplished. And that the, the operations of the Holy Spirit are what? In this instance, opera day or ad extra. I'm talking about in history, the Holy Spirit applying the salvation um, that the Son has accomplished and that the Father has ordained, if that makes sense. So you can see the Trinitarian, um, the Trinitarian activity there. It's a beautiful thing of our triune God. And then, of course, verse 11, it's all according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, right? So, again, contrary to the, the three isms that are in error, you do not find libertarian free will in this passage. Uh, you don't find it anywhere in the scriptures, but it, it, this, this passage makes it quite clear. Now, I want to look at a few other verses because, again, this topic is uh, it's controversial because, again, it rubs against it, it rubs us the wrong way in our flesh, in our fleshly thinking, I think. But let's let's flip to Genesis 45. Genesis 45. So this is the story of Joseph. You guys know the story. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers because they hated him. His dreams that they would, that he was sharing with them, that they would bow down to him. Genesis 45. And this is after Genesis 45, 4 to 8. This is after his brothers, after the famine, they've come to Egypt. They've discovered who Joseph is, right? And they're scared of him now. Look at what Joseph says. Uh, Genesis 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near to him. They came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years, yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Okay, so I'm, I'm sort of riffing off of uh, John Piper's excellent newer book, Providence. I'm going to make a rec recommendation for that book later. Um, so Piper, Piper notes in this passage that you've got you sold, right? So in other words, Joseph's brothers were responsible and morally culpable for their actions. And yet Joseph also says God sent three times. For, so you sold and God sent. Both are true in that instance. Now flip ahead to Genesis 50. 
I know this is a, this is a classic text to go to on this topic, but there's there's things that are easy to skip over. Genesis 50 verse 20. So this is after um, uh, Jacob has died, right? And and the rest of Jacob's sons are scared that Joseph is gonna is gonna do away with them now or something. And and he's he's comforting them, saying, "No, that's not gonna happen." Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All right. So Piper, he very insightfully notes uh, regarding this text. He says, quote, the text does not say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. We often speak that way, don't we? Um, the text actually says God meant it for good. There's, there's a difference there. That is, God ordained it and saw to it that it would take place. Well, at the same time, Joseph's brothers were morally culpable for their decisions and actions. Let's flip now to the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2, 22 and 23. Look what Peter preaches. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man to you, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Same thing. They are responsible for their actions, and yet God predestined it to take place. Our salvation depends on this. This is part of God's eternal decree. Flip ahead to Acts 4 now. Very similar passage. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Herod and Pontius Pilate are responsible for their actions. They, they were part of the crucifixion of the, of the sinless Son of God. And yet it was God's plan. God had predestined that to take place. Okay, so now my guess is at this point, some of you guys at least are, are dying to share your two cents about this topic. What I'm going to do at this point, and it's, it's great to have questions, I would just say with a topic like this, it's very easy to play devil's advocate and just play devil's advocate indefinitely, right? What about this? What about this? What about this? People can play devil's advocate about this topic for the rest of their lives. I would suggest that this is a topic where we come to God's word with fear and trembling and we submit to God's word and what it says. 
there's a very real sense in which with our fallen finite minds, we cannot completely resolve the tension. But this is something that we want to humbly submit to God's word rather than bringing our philosophical uh, presuppositions to. So the other thing I'm going to suggest is I mentioned John Piper's book, Providence. It is an excellent read. It's a very big book, um, but it's, it's an excellent read. It came out recently. If you're, if you're struggling with this topic, please pick that book up and just chip away at it. It's, it's an excellent book. So let me just give you a sneak peek. Among other things, Piper deals with a philosophical assumption, quote, that ultimate self-determination is essential to moral accountability. He's got a chapter on that. Again, he deals with the philosophical assumption that ultimate self-determination, what I've been calling libertarian free will, is essential to moral accountability. Now, I also noticed on the TGC Canada website recently, our own pastor, Jared Harfield, actually has an excellent book review on Providence on that website. So go check that out. Google uh, Jared Hartfield Providence Book Review, TGC Canada. It's a, it's a very good book review. I'm just going to say, so th that book, again, I'm just giving a bit of a sales pitch. That book is 711 pages. But let's just consider this for a second. And I know that my mother-in-law read it, right? My mother-in-law, Mary, read it. And Mary, you're not, a, you're not a crazy big reader, right? So if Mary read it, chip away incrementally, right? So let's just do a little bit of math here. You kids, are you starting to fall asleep? 711 pages, two pages a day. You can finish the book in under a year. Two pages a day. What is that going to take you? Like three or four minutes a day? Five pages a day, you finish the book in 142 days. So if you finish the book in a, five pages a day, 142 days, how many days would it take to finish the book in 10, 10 pages a day? 71. 142 days, 71 days. You read 10 pages a day, you can finish that book in under three months. And it is an excellent, excellent resource. John Piper, Providence. Okay, that is the end of the sales pitch. Um, we're going to have to keep moving here. Now, I, I'm, do you guys remember Pastor Clint, does he go to 8.30? Okay, still got a half an hour. Are there any questions at that point? What's that? Yeah. Can you define what responsibility means? Like, so culpability would be like someone who's responsible for an actor. Yeah. Or, or maybe I'll, I'll frame it up slightly differently. So if we see, not see, but like, so libertarian free will um, or autonomous free will, no. But there would there be a place where it would be like culpable free will. So not, we'll call it full autonomous free will. But yeah. Would, will that would imply responsibility? Or do you believe that it's possible to have responsibility while simultaneously not having free will? Or yeah, any, any form, some degree of perception. Right. So the picture that the scriptures give us regarding man's so-called free will after the fall is that you, I mean, you could use the term free will, but the, the problem is, is that that so-called free will will always choose 
to disobey God. It will always choose sin. And this is a matter of desire. Rather, I mean, so people will talk about um, inability, right? I just like to stress when the when the the topic of inability comes up, human inability to obey God, to please God, to repent, and so on, based on um, one's own will. The question of inability has to do with desire. It doesn't have to do actually with constraints. It's not as if God is constraining a person from repenting. That the the all of us in our fallen state out of sight, God's grace do not want to repent. That's the problem. And we are responsible for that. We are responsible for that. It's a, maybe we could keep chatting after. Um, any other questions on that point? It's advocating that um, he yeah no he's saying that that's a that's a philosophical assumption that is foreign to the scriptures yeah but you'd have to go to check out his book to get a fuller treatment can you chapter you are desiring god you can glance at the pdf version and you can't you can print it off right but you can look at the so there's a PDF, it sounds like, of John Piper's Providence online. All right, divine governments, point three. Again, Burkhoff's uh, definition. This is the continued activity of God, whereby he rules all things so that they answer the purpose of their existence. God is represented, uh, represented as king of the universe, both in the Old and in the New Testament. He adapts his rule to the nature of the creatures which he governs. His government of the physical world differs from that of the, of the spiritual world. It is universal, includes the most insignificant things, and that which is seemingly accidental. So in God's world, um, believe it or not, there's actually no such thing as luck. I know we often use that term, don't beat yourself up if you use it, but there actually is no such thing as luck. Um, and bears on both the good and the evil deeds of man. Okay, explanation. So the emphasis here in, in God's government is on God's universal reign over all of his creation in seeing to it that each part of his creation fulfills its purpose and all things come to their appointed end. So just consider, I think this is pretty straightforward. This is going to be a quicker one. But then, like I said, there are a couple of topics I want to touch on briefly at the end so scripture i think you guys have this in your handout um from daniel 4 so this is after king nebuchadnezzar the most powerful man on the planet at that time essentially think of the united u.s president in our day or maybe xi jinping of china nebuchadnezzar had been um humbled by the lord and after that humbling, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said, verse 34. At the end of the, of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to ge generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, 
and none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4, 34 and 35. Or our own Lord's words, even these pastoral words from Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Or consider this passage. I'm not sure if it's in your handout. It's from Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. This is speaking of another king, King Cyrus, who was instrumental in sending the Israelites back to uh, Israel after the exile. The Lord says this of King Cyrus, Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that's in reference to Cyrus, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Now, that lines up with this, doesn't it? God's eternal decree compared to the, those three erroneous isms. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's God's government. And you can see how these three really sort of overlap and intermesh, can't you? But then there's some nuances there. All right, we're just going to touch on extraordinary providence. Extraordinary providence. I've just added a couple to, to Burkhoff. He deals with these, but just sort of in different categories. All right. Extraordinary providence definition. Uh, and actually, this is Burkhoff's definition. Quote, we distinguish between general and special providences. And among the latter, the miracles occupy an important place. A miracle is a supernatural work of God. That is a work which is accomplished without the mediation of secondary causes. Okay, explanation. So while God ordinarily works through the secondary means of his created order, he freely works in immediate ways as well. So you can see the quote from Lethem there. Lethem says, quote, the resurrection is contrary to the normal process of secondary causation. Yet God can reconstitute the body as and how he pleases, end quote. So it's important to note here, again, there's actually two ditches that even as Christians, we can fall into on this topic. Um, so on the one hand, we can be tempted to label things as miracles that actually aren't miracles, because what we're trying to do is highlight to the unbelieving world that God is active in his creation. So I'm going to give you an example. And this is going to step on a few people's toes. But when a baby is born, very often we will say as Christians, oh, it's such a miracle, right? 
Now, don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful, wondrous, amazing thing. But technically, a baby being born is actually not a miracle. It's not a miracle. So, uh, King David in Psalm 139, 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So this describes the natural process that God has ordained and actively oversees and sustains in the conception and growth of a child in the womb, right? But it's actually not a miracle. It's not a miracle. The virgin conception, on the other hand, is a miracle. You see the difference? The virgin, the virgin conception is a miracle. The ordinary means were not at play in the conception of our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, the other ditch is recognizing a true blue miracle for what it is and failing to recognize that when God isn't working in miraculous ways, he is somehow a distant God, like the God of the deists. You see that? That's sort of the other ditch. We could, you know, and there can sometimes be a longing for the sensational, right? Because, oh, well, we want to see God work. Well, God, God works primarily through ordinary means, even sort of this philosophical term, secondary causes. Um, so just a couple uh, couple of verses there. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, I believe Exodus 15, that's the song of Moses. So the Israelites had witnessed the 10 plagues, all of which were miracles, right? That's the miraculous realm. They had witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. That was another supernatural event. And they were wondrous works. You got a verse there from John 2.11. Um, speaking of Jesus turning the water into wine. He says, uh, John says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, and if you're familiar with the gospel of John, there are seven signs um, or miracles that John sort of builds his gospel around. And of course, the resurrection, <laughs> the resurrection is a miracle. The resurrection of Christ um, is a miracle. Okay, last point, and we're actually going to be done before 830, so there'll be some time for questions. Last point, and I want to land here just because this topic is very pastoral, and I think it's a good place to land. This is what uh, Robert Leffen calls special providence. Special providence. All right, definition. Definition from Leffen there. Quote, special providence refers to God's particular care for his church and those who belong to it. So explanation. As distinguished from God's common grace, as expressed in his loving care for all that he has made, see Psalm 145, 15, 16, special providence focuses specifically on his special and intimate care for his people. 
Now we're actually going to the Heidelberg Catechism here, which has a whole sort of wealth of citations. We're not going to look up all of them, but just consider these words from the Heidelberg Catechism um, developed in 1563. So this is a Q&A like a catechism is. Question number one, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Christ, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's a beautiful question and answer. I'll leave uh, you folks to check out some of those citations in your own time. Notice question 27. Question one is a well-known question. Like most uh, catechisms, most people in our day, myself included, don't actually memorize the whole thing. And very often we're familiar with the first ones, but not the ones later on, right? Uh, question 27 says this, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which he upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hands. The beautiful answer. Now, and I just, you know, the well, very well-loved Romans 8. There's many other verses we could go to, but I'm just going to close with this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. So are there any questions at that point? Mentioned the two ditches for extraordinary dominance. I missed the second one, like an example. Yeah, this the second one, the second ditch would be um sort of the the desire for sort of the sensational or the miraculous, which can sort of assume that God's ordinary um providential care of his creation is somehow God's is sort of the distant God of the deists. Um Any other questions? Yep. Yeah. Everything is true of the How do you explain the, the story about the, 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 the Viper? The, the one about where it was the lamps and the. Oh, the parable in the, in the Gospels of the bridegroom where you have. Are you talking about the virgins who trimmed their wicks and the virgins? Some prepared and some did not. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So one of the things that that parable highlights then is that, again, the Lord uses means. The Lord uses means. So an error to fall into, I mean, another dish I didn't deal with 
in reference to God's maybe concurrence specifically is the error of fatalism. Fatalism. So fatalism would would be and 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 to be honest with you, the Muslim belief system would be fatalistic. They would recognize their conception of God as such that he is sovereign, he's transcendent, he has predestined all that will come to pass. Therefore, secondary means or causation or human decisions, human lives uh, are, are unnecessary. They can't change anything. Yeah. The answer that you see in the scriptures is, right. Yes, 100%. 100%. So you see both. You see, you see human responsibility, hundred um, percent. And I think that that uh, parable certainly highlights that. But then, what we would have to say is, in behind all of that, you have God's eternal decree that is then uh, being played out and coming to fruition in His external works. Does that make sense? right yes yeah 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 right so free will um i would say if you want to use the term Free will, it, it really comes down to, um, I mean, what, so one of the things that, that Patrick Clint dealt with in a previous class was, and I can't remember the categories that Burkhoff uses, but you've got God's um, will of decree and will of command, right? God's will of decree and will of command. So God's will of decree is God's eternal decree. It's, it's everything that he has, sorry? Yeah, it's it's something that his he has decreed or um, plans will certainly take place, just like a decree of a king, right? So he's kind of yeah, not only foreseeing though, actually ordaining, ordaining. So that's God's will of decree. Now the second uh, category is God's will of command. What is that? That's the, or we could, I think some theologians use the term God's prescriptive will. What desire, what God desires of humanity, what God has commanded of humanity. You can see that in God's law, for example, right? The 10 commandments would be um, demonstrative of God's will of command. This is, this is God's desire for humanity. However, as we know from God's 10 commandments, <laughs> As we progress through the scriptures, as we see Israel's failures over and over again in the Old Testament, as we see the stubbornness of the and the proud human heart all throughout and in the New Testament, we learn that God's commands, like Luther said, are a school teacher or 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 a schoolmaster that are intended to lead us to Christ. Right. So so in other words, God's commands, they're a mirror that show us that we're lawbreakers. We look in that mirror and we say, I've, I've broken every single one. And that really has to do. So, so, and what I'm saying then is so-called human free will is limited 
by virtue of our fallen state. We, we will always choose to sin rather than choosing to please God or obey God. In, a, in our fallen state, outside of God's grace. Yeah, in First John. In First John, if if you love me, you obey my commandments. Yeah, but First John also tells us that the reason we love God is because He first loved us. So, in other words, the reason that anybody loves God, the reason that you love God, is because God actually took the initiative to love you first, right? So, um, we can we can talk about this after. If you want to come up and ask me more questions, definitely feel free. Aiden. You're talking about um, chance and then so like not in the realm of free will but rather random chance right if i remember you said that that, that does not exist because yeah. everything is ordained yeah um but if we think about it from like a human perspective we understand randomness like we, we treat the world as a little bit of randomness and we can learn about randomness we there's an entire field of probability and it's quite easy to understand let's be clear so i guess my question is is that is part of this this perspective because like I can learn probability and use it and wield it, and yet ultimately, at some level, it's almost false. Because there's all the, the things that I'm, I don't know, predicting or accounting for in my, my probability theory. Right. Ultimately, is for naught because God already like there is no probability for God. But it's a difference in perspective. Is is free will similar, maybe? Or like I found it really strange that you said that like there's not random chance, but we live as though there is when we make decisions about which flank we cover or in war like predicting where the enemy is going to come. Like there's certain points where we don't know. So then we use, we use it as a tool. Again, I, I'm, it's not perfectly refined what I'm saying, but maybe you can kind of springboard off of it. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's flip to, I was just looking up a verse there. Uh, Proverbs 16, Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, verse 33. All right. And if you read through the Proverbs, there are other Proverbs similar to this. Proverbs 16, 33, the law is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So the lot, it was sort of a means of making decisions in ancient cultures, right? You're going to cast lots. It's sort of like rolling dice, right? Well, according to the scriptures, okay, there's, there's, there's a seeming randomness there, but actually it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, there is, there is no such thing as anything random that is outside of God's providence, outside of his purview. But it would seem wrong to say that probability is false so it's like we're talking about almost two different things well i would say we're t when we're speaking about probability probability we're speaking about a concept that our finite minds exactly. have sort of developed to make sense of our experience so but but in behind that we have to recognize that the scriptures are clear god has actually ordained even this the seeming um random um sort of chance things of life right would it be a wrong step to think that free will functions the same? So it's a word that we use to make sense of our experience. Right. We talk about things like probability. 
Yeah. It's most people's intuition that a person should be culpable within context of what they see to be freely able to do. But you don't, you're not culpable for not jumping to the level. But right. is that in a similar way that we would use something like probability as a, a thing that we use to describe our lived experience? Yeah. Although ultimately not true for God. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that could be a fair way of putting it. It's sort of a, 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 a concept that's been conceived of by the human mind to make sense of our experience. I mean, it's been said, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, we all, we all, for the most part, not everyone, but we all sort of start out as Arminians, right? Because in our experience, yeah, I'm coming to God. All of a sudden, you know, I love God's word. I'm convicted of my sin. I'm seeing the beauty of Christ. I'm repenting and believing. Aren't I doing that? experientially that's where most of us sort of start right but as you as you get to know god as you get to know his providential sovereign care over all of his creation even as electing love for his particular bride the church um you start to see okay well god was actually the the primary mover as it were in behind all of that the only reason you're sitting here right now asking me that question is because the lord has drawn you and saved you Right. And, and, and the thing is, is, I mean, so we can get all sort of intense and intellectual about this, but these are deeply pastoral truths. Right. Like I said, when I was dealing with Arminianism, um, you, you have to keep yourself saved according to that concept. And there is no assurance. Right. And as opposed to, you know, Philippians chapter one, he who began a good work in you, he who began, he's the one who began it will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Right? Question? Yes. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, was was Adam? I'm just going to restate it for the sake of this recording. What was what was Adam able to freely choose to obey God or not? Is that a fair restatement? Yeah, and then like, like, yeah, because you're saying it's because of our sinful nature that we can't. God, yeah. Yeah. Right. So I think the biblical answer is is in in regards to Adam, in his in his sinless state, he actually did have the ability to obey God, and I think he I I think there's there's reason to be to be. Uh, to believe that he actually did for a time. But when confronted with evil, he did choose the evil. He, choose the tre- he, he chose the treasonous path of seeking to dethrone God. So, and in behind your question, just to answer it then, yes, God did preordain the fall, 100%. There's, there's no way around that. It's part of God's eternal decree. And then, like, I guess I'm going Right. Um, 
like the sense that like thought knitted us in our in our mother's womb, right? But then because of the sins of our father, we were created with a sinful nature. Although it was taught for those Bible that like the sons must say that they were the father. But it seems like we are Right. Yeah. So that's that's a fair question. I I would say the Ezekiel passage is actually dealing with something different that is limited to the old covenant. So and it's it's so so the concept of um, children paying for the sins of their fathers. Where do you see that? You see that in Kings with King Josiah, for example. Josiah just rediscovers the book of the law, right? It had been buried in the temple, sadly. He rediscovers the book of the law. He makes massive reformation in his day. And yet God still says that judgment and exile are still coming. So those, those generations after Josiah were paying for the sins of the generations before Josiah. It's something that if you read the book of, uh, well, the old covenant uh, in Exodus uh, Leviticus and then Deuteronomy. It's something that I would suggest is unique to the old covenant. So you'll hear, for example, that, okay, the reason why alcoholism is in my family in this generation is because it wasn't the previous generation. I think that's a misapplication of that passage in Ezekiel. I think that through the gospel, so there can certainly even be genetic predisposition to alcoholism, 100%, and even sinful influence and so on in the family. But it doesn't mean that a person is fatalistically doomed to be an alcoholic because their dad was. See what I'm saying? Now, to try to answer your question, then, let's just flip to Romans 5 real quick. Romans 5 answers this, that the other part of the question that you're asking. Um, and this is something that Pastor Clint is going to get into a little bit later with Christology and so on. But it's let's touch on it since you're asking it. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sins, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Okay, so sin, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, right? Um, the reason why we are born sinners is because Adam's decision right? This is the doctrine of federal headship. Adam is our federal head. He's our federal representative, right? Just like you have the captain on a hockey team you and you're a player on the team, you might not um, do the play that the captain does to either win or lose the game, but you win or lose the game based on his action, as it were, right? So federal headship. Now, the reason why federal headship is so important, and one of the things that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here is, um, look at verse 18. We have federal headship 2.0 here in Adam 2.0. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Speaking of the righteousness of Christ, right? The righteous life of Christ, his, his sacrificial death, his substitutionary death. 
So the doctrine of federal headship cuts both ways, right? The way that I've said it before is if 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 a person has a problem with our federal the federal headship of Adam, the fact that we're sinners because he sins, you also have to do away with federal headship 2.0. In other words, the righteous life that Christ has lived and that is imputed to you through faith in Christ, well, that gets chucked out the window too, right? And this is the way this is the way God works in His economy of salvation. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, let's it's 830. I'm going to pray. And then actually, I want to sing a song. Do you guys have hymnals on your table? Let me pray. We can sing and then definitely feel free to come and ask me any questions. So let's let's pray first and then we can sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Father, our minds are uh, probably tired. And yet, Father, I hope uh, encouraged as we have been uh, challenged by your word to think of your sovereign uh, action, even your providential uh, action uh, in, upon, over your creation. And Father, even as we think of your special providence, we recognize for those uh, who are uh, Christians here tonight that uh, the reason why we are trusting and following Christ is because of your sovereign grace, your providential uh, calling and care over our lives. So we just give you thanks and praise for this. Just pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to bring our questions to your word, recognize its inspiration and authority, and even submit to your word, uh, even, even for comfort, even when things perhaps do not make sense to our finite mind. So help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I wanted to sing uh, number 60. He's still my soul. And even as we sing this, just think about how God's providence relates in this song. Number 60. All right, we got it. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on